brother. Thank you. Well, again, good morning. If you would, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. We have been going through the book of Genesis, and these first few sermons, the first six sermons of this book, are going to deal with the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Today we take a swipe at quite a large section of this, uh, these 11 chapters. How many of y'all got my email and decided to read this passage I gave you, Genesis 6, 9 through 9, 29? Good. All right. All right. It is a large portion of scripture, and I will tell you, and this may comfort you, I am not going to preach this verse by verse. This morning we'd be here uh, until the afternoon, and you would be hungry and mad by the time I was done. Uh, But also, I don't know that that would be as fruitful for us to do that, because honestly, this is quite a familiar story to you, isn't it? The, The flood, the the Noah's Ark story, that epic story, and it is huge, and a a large period of time takes place uh, from Genesis chapter 6 to the end of Genesis chapter 9. It's a very familiar passage to all of us. In fact, probably most of you are pretty familiar with everything we've gone through to this point. We've been trying to weave our way through this with the goal of hope uh, the goal of, of capturing what the author's intent was. Now, let's just take a moment to remind ourselves of a few important things. Who, was the, who do we believe wrote the book of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus? And Yeah. It was God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. He's the author. Who was the, who was the, who was the one recording these events? Moses. We believe it's Moses, and we have very good reason to believe so. Moses, well, Moses didn't live during this time. Moses lived during a much different time, a time when the, when the story had developed far further down the road, and, and all of the events that take place in the entire book of Genesis were already history to Moses. But he was writing this and preserving this and sharing this to who? those Israelites whom God had set free from Egypt. And and these Israelites, well, you know, when they came out of Egypt, they weren't exactly the most God-focused and grounded group of people. They were God's chosen people, yes, and they understood that. Many of them understood who the, uh, the God of Israel was, and they, 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 at least in word, believed in him. Many of them, maybe not all of them, I don't know. Uh, but, but they had been immersed in a pagan Egyptian culture that had corrupted them. And so what Moses' intent for these 11 chapters in the whole book of Genesis is clearly to educate, to reorient the people of Israel. And I will tell you, that's not a bad thing for us to do on a pretty regular basis as well. To be re-educated on who God is, on who we are, where we come from, and, and how we're to operate in a relationship with God because so much of this is about that. We looked at the first passage 
God created. We looked at this next passage. Uh, we saw the fall of man and its sin entering in and the consequences therein, uh, uh, thereof. We saw man's pride, if you remember that message, man's pride and God's grace or divine grace. And then last week, we looked at uh, walking with God in a world of sin, the testimony of Enoch and a few others. And that has led us to where we are here. If, we, if you will, look with me in Genesis chapter 6, and to just set the stage, we're going to just grab the, those first few verses of Genesis chapter 6 before we dive into the rest. And it came to pass, verse, chapter 6 verse 1, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, the daughters of, uh, were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they, looked, and they took them wives, all of which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And listen, verse 5, 6, and 7, and 8. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved God at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you for the book of Genesis. I thank you for the opportunities it affords us uh, to reorient ourselves here in 2024 as to who you are, who we are, and how our relationship with you should look. So God, I pray as we look at this epic story and and the lessons, the few lessons that we're going to look at this morning uh, that are here, I pray you would just challenge us, challenge our daily walk, challenge our attitudes towards you and towards sin in our life, and Lord, help us ultimately to live a life that pleases you. In Christ's name, amen. The first thing we see in this, in this epic story of the flood is that God will judge sin. You know, if you, if you look back and if you remember, recall back, because it hadn't been that long since we talked about these things, if you think back as to how God had dealt with sin to this point, he'd been pretty lenient, I would say. He, he was rather lenient on Adam and Eve. Did they die as he said they would? Yes, absolutely. But the earth was cursed, uh, but he didn't kill them and destroy them right there and then. He gave them grace. He gave them time. He covered their shame. You consider the story of Cain and Cain's sin and his, his horrible attitude towards God, his unrepentant and unteachable heart, his pride that conquered everything uh, about him. Yet God was continually gracious and he gave Cain opportunity to repent. If you look at uh, 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 all the generations we looked at last week, these were men who lived for hundreds of years 
We're talking thousands, uh, over a thousand years of history that takes place, and yet God does not ultimately judge all of them. But the reality is that God will judge sin. I, I considered putting this, phrasing this as God must judge sin, but that makes it sound as though God has no choice in the matter. And I think because of his character, he must judge sin. Uh, but it is also his will that he will judge sin. Why? We see in this passage that wickedness had increased in the world to un- intolerable levels. Uh, the author makes it clear that sin had increased to a degree that God had no choice but to wipe out humanity and to start over. Now look at uh, verses 11 and 12. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Uh, corrupt, it was corrupt before God. And it's not just mankind you see here. This is the whole earth. It was corrupt. Uh, another word for that word corrupt, we, we might use it in different ways now, but one of the, the, probably the best way I think to interpret it here in this uh, particular context is that uh, it is like corruption is the, it carries the same idea as infection or contamination. The sin had, had entered into the world and it had contaminated the entire earth. It had contaminated nature. It had, the, the curse had contaminated the ground. I mean, it was, it was everywhere. And not only that, it was, the earth was filled with violence. Again, that's the whole earth filled with violence. Not just the actions of men being described here, uh, because he deals with the relationships between man and, and beast. And I don't have time to, to plumb every uh, idea uh, that we have here in this entire epic story. but But... Suffice it to say, it was the whole of creation was filled with violence. It's clear if we follow the growth of sin through Genesis 3 through 6 that that the corruption of earth was the result of man's sin. It It began with man. It began with Adam and Eve. Adam was made from the earth. Uh, The earth was cursed because of man's sin. The blood of Abel cried out from the earth. And now the depravity of mankind had had so corrupted the earth that it must be destroyed and everything must be started over again. I think at this time, if we if we consider also the kind of some of the history we've seen, I think there's probably people who existed at this time that God that, that, that they thought that God would not do anything about it. I mean, let's think about Cain's unteachable and unrepentant attitude. Uh, you know, if, if Cain understood the, the kind of ultimate judgment that would pass through the flood, maybe, maybe Cain, Cain's hardened heart might have softened a little bit. Maybe not. I, Cain was given lots of opportunity, and Cain was also uh, uh, cursed. But it certainly speaks to the idea that he was not afraid of God. Or Lamech. I'm not talking about the Lamech of chapter 4. I'm talking about the Lamech of chapter 3. The, the descendant of Cain, Lamech, who, who, uh, who was such a, a bloody man and, and depraved man. He was proud of his, 
of his uh, violent attitudes and his, his violent approach to life. God's testimony of the wickedness that he saw. Genesis 6 verse 5, that, uh, that the wickedness of man was so great that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a pretty, pretty intense judgment. Strong words from what God is seeing, God's testimony of what he's seeing in mankind. I think judgment, though, was the last thing on their minds. You know that, I think that exists in our culture here today. Because our culture is not, it's not as far as we think from this as we might want to believe. In fact, we're probably very close to the way it was then. Corrupt. The earth is filled with corruption. Violent. Oh my goodness. Could go on and on. We live in a, we live in a bloody world. If you don't believe that, just, gosh, just consider the idea of abortion. We live in a bloody Violent place. And yet I think the reason why things have continued as they have is because there's so many, maybe now more than ever, that don't believe that God would or could do anything about it. But what I appreciate about God is that God warns before he strikes. And we see that in this passage. He gives a warning. He, he tells Noah what is about to come. He gives Noah time to respond. And I think uh, we'll talk a little more about this and, and, and when we talk about, uh, more about Noah. I think Noah didn't just keep this information to himself. We know at least 75 to 120 years, that's, the, that's kind of the ballpark where people try to place how much time took place. Uh, between the instructions that God gives Noah and how to build the ark and, 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 and to build the ark, and then the time that the flood actually comes, 75 to 120 years. Uh, and I'm not going to try to uh, uh, define that for you this morning. And Brother Lester, I think, has probably already defined that for you on a Wednesday night. So come to Wednesday night uh, church, by the way. Um, but I think Noah was busy building that ark, and, and, but his testimony also spoke to the need to maybe change the way you're living. And, and I'm sure people probably approached Noah after they started seeing this huge structure being built. Uh, can you imagine them just walking by and not giving any attention to it at all? I mean, we don't know where he was building it, and we're really kind of making some assumptions here. But I know in 2 Peter 2 verse 5, it says that God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, who was a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. God gave them time to respond. You might wonder why. Why, After that horrible testimony of Cain and his line, why didn't God just wipe them all out then? Because God is a God of grace. God is a God of love and and long-suffering. And he is demonstrating that, yes, once again, even telling, I'm going to judge the earth completely and fully. But there's going to be time. Yet as far as we can gather, nobody believes, except for Noah and his few members of his family. As far as we can tell, nobody truly repents. Still only the eight of Noah's family were on the ark. 
God's judgment also was swift and absolute when it came. God's judgment will be swift and absolute. It began, uh, if you look in uh, Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, it begins uh, suddenly and it moves quickly. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up. This is in one day. We're not talking about the ground just suddenly starting to seep slowly and over, uh, over many months or years, finally the water levels rose to an intolerable level and everybody... No, no, no. This is in one day. All the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights and the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth and the sons of Noah and Noah's wives and the three daughter... Uh, wife <coughs> and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. They and every beast. Uh, listen, it came and it moved fast. And then if we look in verse 17, God's judgment on the earth is complete and absolute. The flood was 40 days upon the earth. The waters increased. It bore up the ark and it was lifted above the earth and the waters prevailed. And they increased greatly upon the earth. And the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth. And all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail. And the mountains were covered. And all the flesh that moved upon the earth, both of fowl, cattle, beast, every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth, and every man, all of whose nostrils was, in the, was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land, died." Every living substance was destroyed from that which, uh, from which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping thing and the fowl of heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained alive. And they that were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed upon the earth and 150 days. You know, uh, some have tried to guess that this was a, a localized flood. I think that's a pretty tenuous argument. It's a pretty lame explanation. You know, when water gets so high, water doesn't just kind of bubble up and stay there. I mean, unless you get like one little drop. You get a huge amount of water and it will find a place to go and settle into every valley it can find. And it says that every mountain of the earth was at least 20 feet underwater. And you know, you might think, well, there's people who have tread water for a day or two and and live to tell the tale. Well, I don't know of anybody who's ever tread water for 150 days. There was absolutely no chance that anyone could survive this. God's judgment is swift and it is complete. And the flood, you know, It is a picture of God's future judgment coming. I think part of the author's intent to share this was was just to, to share with the whole world that God is capable and will judge sin, ultimately and completely. We see uh, in, the, in the rest of this Bible that where that will take place and how that will take place. But just like the flood, God will judge the earth for his own reasons. He will do it within his own timing. You ever hear any guy say, oh, I know when the Lord's coming back. Oh, you hear people say, well, and maybe you're one yourself. You say, man, I think the Lord's coming really soon. You have, I'm telling you right now, we have no clue 
how fast he's coming or how long it's going to be. It could be another thousand. It could be another 5,000 years. It could be another five minutes. We don't know. God is going to do it in his own timing, but God is going to do it with a warning, and he has. God has warned mankind that his future judgment is coming. So we see that God will judge sin, but also the second thing I see in this passage is that God's judgment can be avoided. Turn back to Genesis chapter 6. We see in verse 8 that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God chose Noah. He identified Noah as someone with whom he was going to establish a new covenant and with whom someone he was someone who he was going to use as kind of a, like a new Adam. I I will not tell you this is the second Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. But he is like another Adam. He is, it is from his, uh, his line that we are all from. If you didn't know it, you're, uh, you may be a, a, a child of Father Abraham in a spiritual sense, or maybe in a literal sense, I don't know. Uh, but but uh, you're definitely a child of Noah, a descendant of Noah. And Noah was chosen, but it, look at what it, verse, what it says in verse 9 and 10. Or verse 9, especially. These are the generations of Noah. Okay, so... Uh, if you wonder why I chose this uh, giant passage of Scripture, is because this whole epic story is bookended by generations, and at the end, generations. These are the generations of Noah. This is where it begins. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. You know, uh, Noah had an, a relationship with God. He had a, a testimony that was irreproachable. It says he walked with God. We, we looked deeply at this last week, or we try, I tried to for you, uh, the idea of walking with God and, and what that really looks like. And the only two people in this entire chapter, chapter 6, uh, and chapter 5 and chapter 6 that are, that are said to walk with God was Enoch and Noah. And Enoch was a man of, of quite special character and, and qualities, and Noah just the same. Noah had qualities. He had a relation. The greatest quality he had was this relationship with God where they did life together. Noah walked with God. Last week, I used the example of the relationship I have with my wife. We, are, we walk together through life. I love it. I wish uh, yesterday we got to spend the whole day together. It was like, man, it was awesome. We don't get to do that as often as I wish. We have work and other things that get in the way, but but when we get an opportunity to spend all day together, man, it's a blessing to me. Yet the opportunity to walk with God is open to you every single day. Noah walked with God. He had a special and intimate relationship with God. He walked, he walked with God. Uh, uh, he was obedient. Not only was he, did he walk with God, he was obedient to God. You know, throughout this whole flood epic uh, from Genesis uh, well, from the beginning, Genesis 1.1, and not that he, Noah is named until, uh, 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 until chapter 5, but from, from chapter 5, verse 32, when, when uh, Noah, excuse me, that's not right, chapter 30, verse 30, there you go. Verse 29, that's the first mention of Noah, I'm sorry. 
Genesis chapter 5, verse 29, all the way through the rest of the Bible. You know, we only have one section of Scripture where Noah's words are recorded, and it's after the flood. Everything that takes place between uh, God and these, this over 100 years possibly of, of, of history that takes place, we don't have any recorded words from Noah. But you know what we do have of Noah's testimony? Repeated pictures of his obedience. Noah not only walked with God, he was obedient. Look at verse seven, or chapter 7, verse 5. And Noah did according unto all that the Lord commanded him. It's pretty simple. Noah was was obedient. God gave a command. Noah did it. I, I don't see anywhere in this passage, anywhere in the rest of Scripture where Noah questioned God. I don't see anywhere in all of the canon of scripture that we see uh, Noah complaining to God? He just does what God asked him to do. You know, it's possible to avoid God's judgment if we will walk with God and live a life of obedience towards him. But I think we can take his attitude, his relationship with God just a little bit further I think Noah, I don't think, I know, we see it in the testimony of his life that, he, that is before us here in this passage, that he believed that God was truly God, a sovereign creator God. He didn't argue or question God's instructions to build the ark. Verses 1 through 9, he didn't question God when he was told to enter into the ark. God, think about this. God had, made him, had given him instructions to build this enormous boat. He said, you and your three sons and your wives are all going to go into this boat. You're going to take these animals. Y'all are going to go into this boat. And then I'm going to cause it to rain, probably something nobody had ever seen before. And I'm going to flood the whole earth. Y'all are going to see something you've never seen before in over a thousand years of history. You've never, you've never seen this before, but I'm going to do it. And Noah didn't question it for one second. And then when he'd done all this work and, and, and God told him, hey, why don't you, it's time to load up. Noah didn't question it. He just, he just gets onto the, onto the ark and all the animals join him on the ark. And, you know, I believe the sky was blue that day. He didn't look up and go, where are the clouds though, God? He, he didn't go, well, the ground, I mean... You said the water's going to come up from the ground. I, I don't know. Everything looks pretty okay to me right now, God. No, Noah did not question God at all. He loaded, and in fact, it says he waited a whole week. Now, God told him he would have to wait a week, but he didn't question it, and he stayed. And when the time came, God sealed him on the ark. How many of us would have a better deeper, more joyful life if we would just walk with God, obey Him, and just believe that He is who He says He is. Listen, God's judgment can be avoided. 
If we'll live a life that, that God instructs us to live. Now, can you do that perfectly? No. And Noah was not perfect. Uh, it says he was a just man. It said he was, uh, he was uh, perfect in his generations, but that is in description to all the sinful, wicked people that were his contemporaries. He is, in comparison to all of them, he is just and perfect in his generations. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't earn it. No, it wasn't perfect, yet he lived a life pursuing an attitude of pleasing, a life of pleasing God. I love, if, we, if you turn to chapter 8, this other thing that Noah does after the flood. Verse 20. It says, Noah builded an altar unto the Lord. Uh, the flood has is, is taken place. The waters rose. Uh, there was a 150 days of the water prevailing over the earth and the waters receded. And then the, the boat settled on the mountains of Ararat. And then they uh, were able to ascertain that there was dry ground. And then they waited the, the requisite amount of time, and then they finally exited the ark. And the very first thing that Noah does is he worships. Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. And while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, uh, cold and heat, summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. And those words have stood thousands of years of history. But Noah, we're talking about escaping or avoiding God's judgment. Noah lived a life that was irreproachable before God. But Noah's sacrifice also pleased God. It's the first time in Scripture that someone is described as having built an altar, though I feel sure that others probably had done so before unto the Lord. And Noah, I think, sacrificed out of gratefulness towards God for his, uh, the salvation of him and his, his sons and their wives and of the animals and, and guiding them and protecting them through this horrible ordeal. God, I think, uh, Noah, I think, sacrificed out of gratefulness, and the Lord was pleased. He smelled a sweet savor. That is a very... Uh, 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 there, that is a very descriptive way of describing God being pleased. And the Lord, it said in his heart, you know, before at the beginning of this passage, uh, God's heart was grieved. He was sad. And, and it says he repented that he had made man. And uh, I probably shouldn't chase this rabbit trail, but I'm going to real quick because that's such a confusing thing. That doesn't mean God decided, well, hey, I think I'm going to change my mind and I wish I had done things differently. No, he's going, I wish man had chosen differently. And it's, God was grieved because of the sin and violence and corruption in the earth. But now, such a change in God's heart, he is pleased. And I, uh, I hope this isn't... Uh, uh, I'm going to make a connection here that I've uh, observed as I studied this passage It's immediately after this sacrifice that God said, no more will I do this thing that I've just done. Now, do, am I saying that Noah is the reason why the rainbow means what it means? And, and it's Noah's actions of giving a sacrifice that, that, that speaks uh, to, to God's 
change. No, God does not change because of man, and he didn't change because of Noah. But I believe Noah, not only was he giving an offering of thankfulness, I think that offering may also, we could maybe parallel that with the offerings of Job, where he gave for his children in case of their sin, and and the offerings of Moses that he gave on behalf of the children of Israel. I I think that this is an intercessory offering as much as it is an offering of worship and thankfulness. You know, we should be praying for this earth we live in. We should be interceding for the lost. We live in a community that is vibrant. It is thriving. There are over 200,000 people that live within a 10-minute drive of our church. And every single one of them need a Savior. Every single one of them need to hear the gospel. Every single one of them needs to experience God's grace and mercy and long-suffering so that they might hear the gospel and, and receive Jesus Christ for eternal life. There's a way. God's judgment can be avoided. And I think part of that is being an, a people who intercede for those that are lost. Now, those people that are lost must hear the gospel and respond, if you understand me. I think the result of this offering was not only God's pleasure. That was the perfect time for God to announce, no more will I judge in this way. If you go to Genesis chapter 9, and you read those last few words from verse 19, 18 and 19 through verse 29, or verse 27 especially. It's an interesting story, and I, I, we don't have the time to look at it. And I, I will confess to you, I am, I, I've loved studying this passage for this message, but it has made me strongly consider preaching a whole series on this passage. And I may do that maybe next year, later this year. But we see an event that there's a lot of discussion about what exactly happened. And, but the result, I think the point of its inclusion, I think the reason why Moses included this, eight, verses 18 through 27, in this entire flood epic is to remind us that even though God will judge sin and judgment can be avoided, that there's still sin as a problem in the world. Sin is still a huge problem. God's judgment can be avoided. But my third and final point this morning is that God's grace is truly what will keep us afloat. Go back to chapter 8, verse 1. We read those last few verses, the the. the Several verses before chapter 7, I think we read verse 17 through 24. Then look at verse 8. It says, God remembered Noah. God remembers his own. You know, this is the first time in Scripture where God is described as having remembered someone. It happens many more times throughout Scripture. But this is the first time. 
God saves those who he remembers. God remembering doesn't mean that God forgot about Noah either. It doesn't mean that God said was like, oh yeah, I did something. <laughs> oh man, my judgment's done, but I forgot I did something that was going to help man keep living. No, God knew. It wasn't that he, he had forgotten. God knows all things. He doesn't forget. But what God does is he, he turned his attention back to someone, back to Noah. And he turns his attention back to this person whom he had made a promise, and he then is going to fulfill that promise. And then he's acting towards the benefit of that person that he's made this promise to. When, he, when it says, God remember Noah, I mean God has, has just moved his attention back on Noah. Back on man. Back on forging that new covenant. God also not only remembered Noah, but it says, and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. God made the wind to pass over the earth and waters assuaged and the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. God remembered the animals as well as Noah and his family. He remembers and wants all of his creation uh, to live in blessedness. I think this is just a beautiful reflection of God's character. People want to look at this epic story and, and just paint God as this evil, mean, unreasonably angry God. But he is not that way at all. He is a God of love. And that his love means that he is a God of faithfulness. And he is a God who remembers his promises and acts upon them and will fulfill them to the end. God is love. It means he's faithful to those he's redeemed. God remembered his own, and while the flood was a picture of God's future judgment, the ark was a picture of God's divine plan to rescue humanity through Christ. You know, the ark represented safety from God's judgment, didn't it? There was no other safe place in all of this entire story to be. There was no high mountain high enough. Uh, there's no airships that we hear about. There's nowhere to go. And, and I believe the water was so cataclysmic. Any small boats were going to be toppled, and anybody in a small boat wouldn't have had time to get enough food. They would have died anyway. Listen, there was no other safe place but that ark. And that ark was God's plan. God planned that ark. Genesis 6, 14 through 16, you see it clearly how he planned it. The ark then, we see in Genesis 6, 7, verse 16, God seals that ark up. He closes the door. Did you know in all the instructions given in the, in, 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 uh, in the building of the ark that there are no instructions for a rudder? You know, if you build a boat that big, don't you think it would be useful to be able to control that thing a little bit? I might need a rudder. We don't hear Noah go, hey God, do I need a rudder on this thing? There's no plans for a rudder. This is faith totally in God. The ark was guided by God. It was totally left to God's control. The only thing required from anyone 
To be safe on the ark was to get on board. Was to believe in God and to get on board. The cross of Jesus is the only safety from the judgment that is coming. You know, God coming as Jesus was God's plan. There's so many places in Scripture I could take you. Isaiah 7, 14 is, is where I would like to take you. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. That's God's plan. Emmanuel means God with us. That's God's plan, and God says, hey, I'm coming. I'm coming for those that are mine. I'm coming. The cross of Calvary where Jesus would become a sacrifice for all mankind, that was God's plan. First Peter uh, 1, 18 through 24, as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, whose verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Listen, the cross of Calvary was God's plan. And God seals all who have put their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's the one who seals us into this plan. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it says, we are sealed into that. I won't read that whole passage for you, but I encourage you to go there. God's plan is guided by God. It is not defined by man. And any church that tells you you must fulfill these particular steps, they're lying to you and they're lying to themselves that that's real and true. God's salvation plan is guided by him and no one else. It is not defined by man. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. There is no man on earth who can define a plan to get to God. No Christian plan, no Islamic plan, no other otherworldly religion plan. It's only through Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And the only requirement from man to be saved in Christ, to be in this sealed, safe gospel message is to have faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ and to get on board. The book of Acts chapter 16, a couple of our apostles were in jail. Something miraculous happened and they were set free. But there was a Roman guard there. There was a Roman guard who, well, if you were in the Roman guard, he realized very quickly what had happened. He realized that if these prisoners were freed and they escaped, upon his head be it. He faced judgment from his superiors and he was ready to fall upon his sword. And those apostles said, hey, hold on, man. We're all here. We're all here. And that Acts chapter 16, he asks them a question. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And this is their answer. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Listen, if you want to escape the judgment, if you want to, if you want to stay afloat through the judgment of God, get on board. And Christian, 
Walk with him. We live in a world very much like this that's described for us. A world where sin has corrupted every facet of society. Violence is everywhere. We live in a bloody society. And judgment is coming. Yet God, in his love and in his grace, has prepared a way. He's done it through Jesus Christ. He's done it through the cross. And if you're here this morning and you've never truly trusted him, get on board with Christ. Trust in him. Listen, that's all that is required. There's no, there's no steps. You don't even have to get baptized. The, 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 the obedient path of the Christian is to immediately get baptized after you get saved. But you don't have to get baptized even to be saved. You just have to believe in Jesus Christ. And I mean believe in such a way like someone getting on an ark. Like someone putting on a parachute. Like someone sitting in a pew. Believing that thing isn't going to break right underneath your tuchus. You've got to put your faith in him. But Christian, if you're here, I, I don't know about you, but I would love to have this kind of relationship that Noah has with God. Boy, would I love to avoid God's judgment in my, in my own life. You know, sin doesn't come without consequences just because he's not going uh, to dump another flood on us. Hey, sin, sin comes with its own consequences. And in this same passage, uh, when, he, when he makes that promise, no longer is he, gonna, uh, is he going to judge the, the earth with, with uh, water like he had here in this flood epic. He says, now, whenever, whenever someone sheds blood, it is mankind that will hold that man responsible. It's now up to us to, to police ourselves in many ways. Listen, sin comes with natural consequences. Sin is not forbidden. Uh, not, sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. It's bad for your life. It will result in consequences. And if you're a Christian and you're here, we need to be walking with him. We need to be spending our day with him every week. Because listen, God's eyes are throughout the whole earth, like Brother Stan preached last Sunday afternoon. And he's looking for those of us whom we can, who can be used by him to to extend the ministry of Jesus Christ on this earth, to enlarge the kingdom, to further. This is what we're to do. And this is our opportunity to respond. Will you stand?